Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and this episode is Q&A number 35. As always, if you have questions that you want answered on the podcast, send them to michael at scientifictriathlon.com or through the Facebook Messenger widget on scientifictriathlon.com. Big thanks to Precision Hydration for sponsoring this episode. Uh, We've had some heat waves coming to Lisbon recently with uh, temperatures above 30 degrees Celsius, even as I record this in uh, mid-May. And that means that I am particularly careful with getting enough electrolytes in both during workouts, during long rides, for example, but also after workouts so that I recover properly as sodium replacement and hydration fluid replacement is part of that recovery process and to actually retain all the fluid that you consume post-workout you need to have enough sodium otherwise you'll just pee it out afterwards so sodium is a critical part and electrolytes in general of your hydration and recovery status so go and take Precision Hydration's free sweat test on precisionhydration.com to learn more about how you sweat and how much electrolytes you lose in your sweat. And you can use the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps, to get your first box or tube of Precision Hydration electrolytes for free. And thank you to Roka. There is uh, one final chance now to enter the Roka giveaway. It's open until Sunday, May 26th, coming up here. So this is the last chance really and what you can do is you can win an entry to any Ironman race in the world plus Maverick X wetsuit which is the fastest flagship wetsuit model that Roka has and plenty of runner-up prizes including buoyancy shorts, R1 goggles, transition backpacks etc to take the total of uh, value of the prices up to more than $2,000 of prices up for grabs. Go to roca.com forward slash TTS, of course, also linked to in the episode description, and enter the giveaway to win the Ironman race entry and Roca Maverick X wetsuit and plenty of other prizes there. All right, let's get into today's first question, which is from Martin in Wales. Uh, Martin writes, I have a question about lactate threshold. I've had a VO2 and lactate test done by my old coach. My VO2 was 60.2 and my lactate threshold heart rate was 145. I assume that it was heart rate here, by the way, and not power. It doesn't say, it says just lactate threshold, but I think it's heart rate. Uh, Martin writes, however, he uses 5 millimoles as the point at which to take this reading from. And everything I'm reading and hearing is that it should be 4 millimoles. Is this okay? Will this make a huge difference to the results? And should I adjust my zones because of this? All right. So uh, thank you, Martin, first for your question. It's it's a good question. And it's not that there is no specific lactate value that should be taken as your lactate threshold. It's not four millimoles. It's not three millimoles. It's not five. Or I should say that for some, it's four. And four is a good average value. Like on, on average, that will probably be close to the truth but for some people uh, the lactate threshold occurs at uh, three millimoles of lactate and for some it occurs at five millimoles per lactate so so it's not about what the value is it's uh, it's where that lactate curve starts to the lactate concentration starts to increase exponentially so it's no longer a linear increase in in lactate with intensity and uh, you can go to episode 79 which is an interview with alan cousins in the in the show notes for that episode which i'll link to it's scientific forward slash tts79 uh, there's a figure 
that uh, shows the anaerobic threshold, which is sort of equivalent. It's equivalent to your lactate threshold. Uh, it, the terminology is always a bit confusing, but that's the way it is. And uh, and there you can see basically what is meant by this and how to find that point where your lactate threshold actually is. So again, hopefully your coach actually looked at your individual lactate curve and determined that for you, 5 millimoles is where this inflection point happened. And that's why your your lactate threshold, 145 beats per minute, it corresponds to a concentration of 5 millimoles. But up until that point, your lactate was increasing linearly and not exponentially. So it would be correct for you. And I hope that that is what your coach did. And I just have to assume that that's what he did. And if this is the case, then the zones that you should have received are based around this this anchor point, your lactate threshold, and also the first inflection point or LT1, as that's sometimes called. So, so hopefully that is what happened and you don't need to change anything. But check with your coach how he did that just to make sure. Because if he just picked 5 millimoles and that's basically a blanket number that he uses for everybody, then that's not correct and, and you don't want to use those values and in, in that situation. You really want to look at the actual lactate concentration curve and determine your, your anchor points, your LT1 and your LT2 from from those different inflection points that happen on the concentration curve. Just briefly about the zones that you'll set, when you have your first and second lactate inflection points, so LT1 and LT2, LT2 is the one that is in uh, is often referred to as simply lactate threshold, then there are several methods, of course, of creating training zones based around this. But in general, your low-intensity training should be below your LT1, and your high-intensity training is above your LT2. And your threshold training is, uh, in terms of heart rate, it's basically from, let's say, your your lactate threshold heart rate minus 8. So if it was 145 for you, your threshold zone might be from 137, 138 or so, up all the way until your, your threshold heart rate 145 beats per minute, maybe even a couple of beats higher, at least if you do, or if you do longer intervals or longer continuous segments at this sort of heart rate so that that is basically how you can how you can set your heart rate zones and get get to know what your heart rate means at different intensities martin's question has a second part which is another question which is affecting me right now i'm into my final three weeks of marathon training and starting to taper but I've picked up a little virus and feel like I'm coming down with something. What is your recommendation at any stage of a training plan if you do become ill? Should you rest completely just to do easy miles or carry on as normal? Obviously, I'm now panicking panicking that if I do rest and take time off, I won't reach my goals in the race. All right, uh, so my take on this briefly is that if it's something light, like a, a light normal cold, and you don't have any serious symptoms, you don't have headache, you don't have fatigue or fever or chest pain, then I recommend training lightly. So maybe you shorten the workouts, maybe you don't even need to do that, but you keep it low intensity, very low intensity, just ticking over until the illness passes. Otherwise, if you do have symptoms like that, you have fatigue, like serious fatigue from, from the illness, and or you have chest pain, you have fever, then definitely uh, take time off, rest completely until you're recovered. Training through it is not going to help you. It's only going to hinder you. You're not going to 
recover as quickly. Your body is already working on overdrive to fight off that virus. So uh, training is is only going to be detrimental. And uh, I know that it's it really sucks being ill. But sometimes an illness forcing you to take a few days off can be a blessing in disguise, actually. Sure, the first few days, once you get back to training, you will feel lousy and you will feel like you lost all of your fitness and it was all for nothing. But then you actually do notice maybe a week or so after being back training that you you are that much fresher and you start to perform a lot better in your workouts. That recovery really helped you get to a new level and absorb the training you did before. So uh, so it can be a blessing in disguise. So don't panic. It will all be fine. Thank you, Martin, for your question and very best of luck in your upcoming marathon. The next question for today is from Guido from Brazil who writes, Hi, Michael. I have a question about setting training zones after performing uh, a test, a lab test that I hope you could help with. I did a 12-minute uh, ergospirometry ramp test on a treadmill uh, running, increasing both speed and incline. Both Garmin and Training Peaks use percent of lactate threshold for setting up the training heart rate zones, but the test I took only provided anaerobic threshold, VO2 max, and respiratory compensation point. I read on a couple of websites that I could use anaerobic threshold as the lactate threshold. Uh, my questions: one, is this statement true? I'm kind of suspicious because they measure different things. Okay, so I'll answer this part of the question first. Thank you, Guido, for your question. Uh, I think looking at your question, because you also sent your test results, that uh, you mean that the test provided your aerobic threshold and respiratory compensation point and VO2 max and not anaerobic uh, threshold and respiratory compensation point or RCP. Uh, because in in ergospirometry tests, what we measure is two thresholds, just like in lactate testing, uh, as per the previous question. So then I, I talked about LT1 and LT2. They are the two inflection points on the lactate curve when we measure lactate. And in ergospirometry, those inflection points are uh, instead based around your, your ventilatory threshold. So they're called VT1 and VT2. So the ventilatory threshold one and ventilatory threshold two. But just like in lactate testing, we use different terms for LT1 and LT2, and it gets all confusing. When the test is based on ergospirometry, uh, gas exchange, then we use some other terms as well. So quite often, respiratory compensation point is used as a term for VT2, so that's second threshold. And uh, aerobic threshold, uh, by the way, anaerobic threshold can also be used for that second threshold. And, and instead of VT1, ventilatory threshold 1, we can use the term aerobic threshold. So, so I think that you sent your results and you sent uh, your, your VO2 max was 51.5. Your And then it says AT, which it says 55% of VO2 max at 135 BPM and 11.9 kilometers per hour. And RCP, respiratory compensation point, 89% of VO2 max, 164 BPM and uh, 16.9 kilometers per hour. So based on this, I think it's very clear that AT here is your aerobic threshold. It's uh, VT1 and VT2 is that respiratory compensation point uh, because it's clear based on the percentages of VO2 max that this is what was measured. So you have your VT1, which is the 50 to 55% of VO2 max, 135 beats per minute. 
and you have your VT2, which is your uh, your 89% of VO2 max at 164 beats per minute of heart rate. So what Training Peaks then and Garmin means with lactate threshold, that is that LT2, which corresponds fairly closely to VT2. Which means that for you, since your test provided respiratory compensation point RCP, which is the same as VT2, that means that the RCP is what you should be using as your lactate threshold, quote-unquote, in those softwares. So your question, is this the same? No, it's not technically the same because they're measured with different technologies with lactate concentration versus uh, respiratory exchange ratios. But for practical purposes, they can be considered the same, yes. Uh, so you, you still use, they're still going to be very, very similar. If you go and do a lactate test, you'll get a similar result. It's not going to be the same, but it's similar enough. And they're the same anchor points. VT1 and VT2 correspond fairly well to LT1 and LT2. They are the physiological anchor points around which something starts to happen, something starts to change physiologically in the body. So, so those would be equivalent anchor points for your training zones. But it's just important to be aware that they're not, since they're measured with different technologies, they're, they're still going to be slightly different. So if you go and do a lactate test, you can't, and you see that your speed at LT2 is slower than it was at, than your speed compared to your speed at VT2 with the ergospirometer test. You can't really compare that because even though they are similar, they're not the same. So you need to do apples to apples comparisons. The same thing if you compare to a friend or something like that. You, you really need to make sure that the testing method is the same if you want to really compare, do, do a fair comparison of, of results. And actually, this also goes for the testing protocol, not just the methodology. So if you do a lactate test or an ergospirometry test, whether you do three minute ramps or five minute ramps makes a big difference and you're going to get different values if you use three minute stages compared to five minute stages. Same sort of thing if you do a lactate test or a VO2 test outdoors on the track compared to doing it indoors on the treadmill, that is going to make a difference as well. So, so there is no black and white threshold or magical exact number. It's more like a range around a certain, certain point. So that's important to be aware of, and the testing protocol is going to have an impact on that. All right, so the next question that Gouda has is, what's your consideration about this protocol? Are there better ones to perform? Well, it's difficult for me to tell, uh, because he only told me the total duration and it, that it increases in speed, which it of course should, it's a ramp test and incline but uh, not by how much it increases the speed and how long the stages are i the one thing that is uh, that i'm not clear on is why they would increase the incline that is my, a concern that i have with this protocol and actually in the results you you sent me it says that at your vt1 the aerobic threshold the incline was zero percent and at the rcp or vt2 it was 1.2 percent so, so it wasn't a big increase in incline, but I'm not sure why they would want to increase the incline at all. The way that I would prefer it to be done is to just have, have a, a set incline that is uh, either 0% or a 1% incline throughout the test. And maybe the 1% would be ideal because that would correspond the best to your paces outdoors because otherwise your paces on the treadmill might be a bit faster than the corresponding paces outdoors would, would be. So then 
but now the the i guess the the disadvantage here with having different inclines is that you can't really set your your speed zones uh or i guess you you can't compare the speeds from the first to the second ventilatory threshold and set your speed zones based on those two anchor points you actually need to choose one or the other probably the rcp and then set your speed zones based on that which isn't ideal i i would much prefer that they would have had one set incline but it may be that i'm missing something and that they had a perfectly fine reason for for doing so uh, but in in general ergospirometry in general is great it really is the the gold standard of testing since it's the only way that we really get information on about running economy which i hope that this lab should be able to give you with the data that they have from the test so you should ask them to get that running economy data as well and also depending on how you measure it you can get into substrate utilization then it becomes even more valuable so how much carbs and fats are you oxidizing at given intensities so so it is a great test ergospirometry in general Uh, you get a lot of information that you can't get from pure lactate test you can't get running economy and uh, and you can't get uh, substrate utilization so so it is great from that sense i mean the ideal thing is that you also take lactate samples when you do the ergospirometry test and you get the best of all worlds that's really the ideal situation uh, otherwise the the one major issue with many lab tests is that they for financial reasons they try to use as short stages as short ramps as possible so usually three minutes which can be a bit too short in many cases and i think it's much better to use five minute stages or at least four minute stages for each speed uh, but that is the way the world works so i would always encourage athletes to ask their lab that they go into to to do five minute stages and and nothing shorter than that but i don't know here how long your stages were so i can't comment on that really The last question that Guda has is can I use the same results for cycling with or without adjustments or should I perform another test on uh, using a stationary bike? So uh, this is a quick one. Yes, you do need to perform a separate cycling tests uh, test to to get specific information to be certain about your results. Uh, that is definitely my recommendation to do that. However, if you choose not to do that or you're not immediately ready to do that maybe you want to save up some money or whatever then what i would recommend that you do is that you use your running heart rate zones and you can subtract whatever the difference is between your your peak heart rate for running versus cycling so let's say that your peak heart rate for running is 190 beats per minute and you know that for a fact that is the the maximum heart rate that you can get up to while running and you know that your peak heart rate for cycling is 180 so then just use your running heart rate zones minus 10 and that is that can be a good proxy for your cycling heart rate zones but keep in mind this is a proxy it's not exact and i would recommend at some point getting in and doing that separate test on the bike as well thank you guda for your question final question for today is from miguel uh, who writes hello michael hello from mexico michael first of all thanks for the great content you present each week It's always good to listen while training. Definitely one of my favorite podcasts. A friend of mine has recently bought a human hex sensor. And based on your recent podcast about polarized training, I was wondering if this device can be used to perform uh, a sort of metabolic test in order to find the right intensities to train. Something equivalent to VT1 and VT2. I have also seen that once you set the human data field in a Garmin watch, 
you can see hemoglobin concentration and hemoglobin percentage readings. Can you please elaborate on how how these readings shall be interpreted? Thanks a lot and keep bringing great content to the triathlon community. All right, Miguel, thanks a lot for your question. This will be a fairly brief answer. I don't have any personal experience with the human or other similar devices, but I have talked to some very smart, very knowledgeable people who do. And Steven Seiler, I don't remember actually if, if it was in my conversation with him or if it was in some other podcast that I listened to, but I know that he has said that unfortunately devices like the human aren't at the moment accurate enough to be useful in practice. You essentially get led down a false trail. And uh, more specifically, I remember talking quite in depth about this topic with Chris Myers, who was a guest on the podcast back in episode 112. And a link to that episode, we talked about periodization. Uh, so Chris is, uh, is a coach, but also a researcher. And he has been researching this topic, used a lot of the technology that is behind devices like the human, which is called NIRS. It stands for Near Infrared Spectroscopy. And, uh, and this technology is basically, it's, uh, it's emitting light of an infrared wavelength into, into the muscle, muscle tissue. And, and then it sort of measures the reflection that, that you get back. And based on that, it can calculate the, the oxygen saturation and other things that the human devices and others measure. The thing with this technology is that the te- technology itself is good, but in its current implementation in devices like the human device and the Moxie as well, I've interviewed the founder of Moxie before on the podcast. The implementation devices like this is nowhere near accurate enough for it to be useful for us as athletes, which is a shame, of course, because it would be great if it were, but that's the way it is. And this is Chris's words, not mine. And it's again, it's not because the technology doesn't work. It It is a great technology used in some great medical device applications, which I know of very well because of my background in medical devices. But in an athletic setting, the device needs to be very small, light, and wearable. And this is where the challenges arise. It becomes very difficult to implement technology that can accurately measure these sort of subtle changes in that with those constraints on the device that we have as, an endur- as endurance athletes. Basically, the infrared light doesn't necessarily get deep enough into the muscle tissue. That's, if I recall correctly, where Chris said that the main issue really is so so that we we do not get accurate enough data on this if you want more information <clears throat> excuse me if you want more information i think that chris would be happy to to talk to you about it just looking up on the look him up on the peaks coaching group website and send him a message because i know that he he was very passionate and, and interested in this topic and we discussed this quite at length after not in the interview but after the interview with him we we discussed this topic so uh, the recommendation from, from me to you would be to, unfortunately, I would not recommend using the human or other devices at this point for the purposes that that you suggest. Thanks anyway for your question, and it's re- really good to get this information out to the bigger audience as well. That wraps it up for today. I'll link in the episode description to the episode 79 that I mentioned for looking at how lactic concentration curves should be used to establish LT1 and LT2. I'll link to the episode with Chris Myers. That was episode 112. And uh, I think that is it. Maybe I'll link to something else. You can see it in the episode description. If you have questions, keep sending them in. And uh, 
keep keep sending in a lot of questions like general training swimming biking running strength and conditioning nutrition race strategy and execution uh, i think i i've been getting a lot of questions about training zones and heart rate and lactate tests and lab tests recently which is great but i also would appreciate getting like a lot a big variety of questions so basic questions around for example swim bike and run training would be would be perfect so there are plenty of questions that haven't been asked yet so i'm just sitting here waiting for you to to send them in so anything that comes to mind uh, feel free to start typing away and click send one other thing i want to start to give some shout outs more often to uh, to training plan users and, and maybe coaching clients and today i want to give a shout out to erin in south africa who wrote an email to me saying, I bought your plan to train for my first ever sprint distance triathlon, which I completed over the weekend. I last swam freestyle at school five years ago. I knew how to cycle, but I had never trained in cycling or done a cycle race. I was completing five kilometer runs in in air quotes in a time of 40 minutes. I came from a strength training background with very little cardio workouts included in my gym routine. Now I just did my triathlon in a time of 1 hour 54 minutes and I'm totally blown away by this. I can't believe that I finished and in a far better time than I could have predicted. Thank you for your plan, Michael. It definitely helped. I don't think I could have done done this without it. Congratulations, Erin, on a fantastic achievement. Not just the race, but actually going through the whole process of consistent training for a race is the biggest achievement, I think especially when training for your first race. So really, really good job there. And thank you for sending through that email. I really appreciate that as well. Uh, you can check out the training plans on scientifictriathlon.com on the training plans page. There are quite a few training plans up there and I try to add more when, as and when I have time to create more. Uh, but uh, yeah, there, there you can find plans from beginner, inter- beginner sprint plans all the way up to uh, up to Ironman plans for more intermediate athletes. I haven't yet created my advanced athlete plans, but the intermediate really means even if you are a 10, 30, even 10-hour Ironman athlete, you can you can do pretty well with, with those intermediate training plans, I think. So advanced would be really quite advanced when I do create them. So there's a range of plans to check out. Big thanks, finally, to our sponsor, sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com take their free online sweat test and use the promo code that triathlon show all on word all caps to get your first box or tube of ph for free and thanks to roca for sponsoring the podcast and remember that this is your last chance to enter the giveaway on roca.com forward slash tts it's linked to in the description and rather than paying hundreds of dollars for your next Ironman entry, you could get it for free by entering that giveaway. So do that, take the chance on it, and let's hope that you win. It's open until the 26th of May, that's on Sunday, so time to enter now. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart, and keep loving triathlon.